Amen. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for braving the daunting rain and gray and cloudiness. Always a joy to worship with the hardiest of the hardy. All right, let's uh, remain standing for the reading of God's Word today. Chapter 9 of the book of Acts, verses 1 through 31. Pretty important story, not only in Scripture, but a pretty important story for actual human history. This is the chapter where God works in such an amazing way that all of human history is changed forever in these events. God's word to us this morning, starting at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up. Go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. By the way, just as an editorial note, anytime God calls, that's just the only answer possible. Yes, Lord, all right? <clears throat> Makes everything very simple. Back to the text. <laughs> the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Uh, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc? In Jerusalem, among those who call on this name, 
And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word this day with hearing, with understanding, Lord, with awe, and Lord, with just the work of your Spirit bringing to bear your word, your work into our lives. We may not have had a conversion experience as dramatic as Saul's, but the conversion of our heart from unbelief to belief, from death to life, from old to new, from stone to flesh, is still a miraculous work. We thank you for giving us life. Lord, I ask for this work of your Spirit today for those of us who are gathered here in this place in these moments, that as you speak, we will listen. What is, what is it that we need to hear from you this day, Lord, to draw us to faith or to deepen our faith? Lord, for those watching online now or even at a later date, which has already been determined by you, I pray that hearts and minds will be open to the work of your Spirit and that people will yield of their stubbornness and selfishness to avail themselves to you. As always, Father God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to work, to speak, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus your Son, our Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, our Lord, is lifted up. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Would you please be seated? Hey, before we get into the message, I just wanted to highlight a couple things. Uh, first off, I wanted to say a very special welcome to those who are joining with us online today. I want to say a very special hello to a lady named Dolores. Have not had the opportunity to meet her yet, but I know she is a faithful viewer and watcher uh, of our online service. And Dolores just wanted to say thank you for being a part of the Oak Park family. Uh, we are so glad that you're part of what God is doing here in this church family. And to all the others watching, hello to you too. I look forward to hearing from you. Please remember, you can text in comments or questions, prayer praises or prayer requests to 805-481-7092. Also, you may notice that there's a little blue card inserted in the back of the row in front of you, and we have a new outreach team, well, except for Jordan, who's in the front row. He doesn't have one in front of him. 
you could pull a muscle reaching behind you on the, the chair behind you. Yeah, don't, don't, don't overdo it, though. But uh, our outreach team is uh, new, it's newly formed, it's very active. They've already come up with 783 things for me to do as pastor. No, they've they've been very good. They've been very good at not adding to my workload, but they've generated a ton of ideas. It's an active group. It's an exciting, uh, excited and exciting group. And they're just asking the congregation for more ideas and more suggestions. So in the back of the row is a suggestions card for new ideas, new ministries, new things to try, new endeavors new outreach activities, ideas, whatever it is. Uh, this will be available for the next, next few weeks, so take one with you. Pray, ponder, think about things, write something down. And just so you know, volunteering an idea does not automatically put you in charge of it, but it will be a great opportunity for you to serve the Lord in something new that God is doing here at Oak Park. Anyway, uh, fill that out take advantage of that. We've also got some other really great stuff coming up. So I hope you're getting the bulletins, you're getting the weekly uh, emails uh, for stuff going on. We've got an exciting new spiritual growth class uh, coming up here in just a couple of weeks. We've got our newcomers dinner uh, coming up next Sunday night for those who are new to Oak Park who want to just meet some other new people and also find out what kind of church we are and how to be more involved and all that. And it's, it's also got free food, so that's a good thing as well. Lots of good stuff happening here at Oak Park. All right, let's get into our message this morning in the text. We come to chapter 9. The church of Jesus at this point is only a few years old. It is fledgling, it is new, it is fresh. The first Christians were so overwhelmed by the, the, the forgiveness and the love of God they had experienced in Jesus. They had bonded together in small groups to worship, to pray, to, to learn from the apostles to have meals together, to to share in communion together, commemorating Jesus' death and his resurrection. The church was marked by exponential growth. People were literally almost just, just, they, they couldn't be held back from becoming believers in Jesus. It was new, it was fresh, it was exciting, and the Christians truly loved one another. They loved even the least of these. They took care of people in need. And the the scriptures say that there was no needy person among them. Means those who had physical needs, they were taken care of. Those who had financial needs, those who were taken, they were taken care of. And I'm sure along with all the emotional needs and everything else, people were being taken care of. They were integrated and welcomed into this new community. The church grew exponentially, quickly, but there was always opposition. Most of the opposition was external. There was a few things internally that the church had to deal with. The external, the external coercion or the external opposition came from the Jewish religious leadership, the Sanhedrin, their ruling council. Early on when the apostles were in the temple preaching about Jesus, they had the first, the two primary apostles, um, Peter and John, arrested They brought them in for a hearing. They were interrogated. They were commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they said, how can we not speak about that which we've seen that is so incredible? Jesus was dead. Now he's alive. Explain that. We don't want to explain that. We just want you to stop talking about Jesus. But it's what happened. Stop talking about Jesus. We can't get out of here. Go. And don't talk about Jesus. They kept talking about Jesus. 
Later, they, the, the, all the apostles, all 12 were brought in. This time they were, they were interrogated and then they were beaten. They were, they were assaulted. They were, they were abused in custody. And as they were beaten and as they were abused, they were once again commanded, stop talking about Jesus. They said, we cannot do that. And they left that beating probably limping, probably just scooting along. But they did so with joy. They rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Such radicals they were. As the leadership of the church expanded just due to the increasing needs, a man named Stephen full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, was preaching and teaching his fellow Greek-speaking Jews about Jesus. They couldn't refute his arguments from Scripture. And as they could not refute him, they could not get him to shut up, so they got irritated and they plotted against him, and they falsely accused him of blasphemy, the highest crime possible. After all, when you're talking about Jesus being the Son of God and Jesus being the Messiah, that comes awful close to equating Jesus with God, which is blasphemy, unless it's true. As as Stephen was interrogated and as he gave his defense, he concluded his, his defense with, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I see the Son of Man. And as soon as they equated Jesus with the Son of Man in the presence of God, the Jewish leadership council became enraged. Blasphemy of blasphemies. Stephen was brutally, inhumanely stoned to death. As he was being pummeled by those rocks, Jesus, or Stephen, seeing Jesus, echoed the words of Jesus on the cross. Don't hold this against them. And Jesus, into your hands I commend my spirit. He died just like Jesus died. Stephen's death became the tipping point for the Sanhedrin to unleash their wrath against those who believed Jesus to be the Messiah. We read this in Acts chapter 8. And Saul, we'll get to him in just a moment, Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul had first appeared just a few verses earlier in chapter 7, almost as a footnote, as Stephen is being executed simply for believing that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. Saul was there. Everyone who participated in that stoning took off their, their, their outer coat, their, their outer garment, and they laid it at the feet of Saul so that he would watch them because this was a mob mentality. It was a rage. 
A lot of chaos happening. So Saul, somehow affiliated with the Sanhedrin, he was the one tasked with guarding the coats as he saw Stephen being beaten to death with rocks. Now he reappears. He soon becomes the focal point of the whole book, actually, just a couple of chapters later. And he's obviously the focal point of our study here in chapter 9. Saul was a Hellenistic Jew, which means he was well-versed in the Greek language and in Greek culture. He had not been born in Jerusalem. He had been born in the city of Tarsus in Cilicia, which is in modern-day south-central Turkey. So you could say Saul was, was from south-central. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably should, have, probably should have done a focus group on that one, but that, that didn't work. Yeah, anyway. He was from south central Turkey. So he was born outside of Jerusalem, but he was born, he was a Jew. He was born into a very devout religious family. And actually, most of his growing up years were spent in Jerusalem. He was extremely devout in his faith. He followed in his father's footsteps as a Pharisee. His credentials, his resume was absolutely impeccable. He writes about it in one of his later letters in the New Testament. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, he was Jewish, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the more highly regarded lineages of the Hebrew people. A Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, which means he had studied the law for years. He had studied the Hebrew Scriptures forward and backward. He had known the entire history of interpretation. He had devoted his life to following the law of Moses to the letter. As for zeal, persecuting the church, that means he took his faith in Yahweh, his Judaism so seriously that anyone who claimed to be a Jew but veered from that by proclaiming Jesus or believing in Jesus was worthy of death because they were an apostate. They were a heretic. They were a blasphemer. He persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He was the devout of the devout. He was the hardcore of the hardcore in terms of his faith in Yahweh and in Yahweh alone. He had the privilege of being a student of the revered Rabbi Gamaliel. We heard about him in chapter 5. Gamaliel is one of the most esteemed rabbis in all of Jewish history. He is still respected to this day and studied to this day. He was the first rabbi given of only seven in all of Jewish history given the title master. He was highly esteemed. We see Gamaliel make an appearance a couple chapters earlier in Acts as, as the apostles are being interrogated and as this Jesus movement is being questioned by the Sanhedrin of which Gamaliel was a part. Gamaliel is the one who stood up for them and said, look, guys, every other 
Messiah or Messianic figure who's come along has simply been a pretender. They've created a dust up, they've gained some followers, and as soon as they've died, the, the followers have scattered, the name has died out, the name is now forgotten. They are not worth worrying about. He said, if this Jesus is just another pretender, these people will soon scatter and disappear too. But if he is who they say he is, there is no stopping it because it is of God. So Gamaliel advocated temperance, restraint. Let's see how this all plays out. And of course, we know the story. It's played out that Christianity has now exploded and like three billion people on the earth claim the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin was not going to stop it, nor could they. And even though Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel, he did not agree with his mentor on this. His perspective instead was, oh yeah? Well, I'm gonna stop it. I'm gonna take care of it. I will arrest them. We will try them. We will execute them. We will quash and crush the blasphemers and end this heresy once for all. So he did not emulate very well the the beliefs of his mentor. We know from other details in Scripture, he actually earned a living as a tent maker. So he was a skilled tradesman, a skilled craftsman. We know he was well-schooled in Greek philosophy. He was acquainted with the works of the great Greek philosophers, and he could quote them, and he could argue with them and against them in public settings, intellectual gatherings. We know he held the privileged position of being a Roman citizen, which would serve him well in the furtherance of the gospel. Saul's devotion to his faith and his willingness to ferociously defend it led to the description of his assault upon the church and the believers in Jesus being like a wild animal tearing apart its prey. It's a very vivid word picture. Saul himself would later label his his zeal, his mission, his focus as an obsession. He was obsessed with harassing people and arresting people and convicting people and seeing people die because they dared believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. It is this rage-fueled focus that has, Paul, has Saul go from Jerusalem to Damascus. The Jewish community in Damascus was huge, Uh, well over 10,000 Jewish people were in that city at the time. There were synagogues everywhere. And Saul had heard that some of these, these Jewish Christians now had fled there to spread their heresy, to take this name of Jesus to the, to the devout brothers and sisters in Damascus. He had to put a stop to it. So he gets letters to authenticate his his mercenary activities, and he sets out for Damascus. It's about 150 miles. It's about a six-day walk. If somebody is going to walk somewhere for six days, you know they are dedicated. They are focused. And my guess is, and this is just pure supposition, this is not in the Scripture, 
My guess is that his rage grew every single day. Something akin to this. These stupid people making me walk all this way. I'm going to show them. I'm going to get them. And you can almost just feel more anger boiling up, more resolve. As I said, that's not in the Scriptures, but, but, but it's so easy to put yourself in that position. This was a man on a mission, and that mission was to show no mercy. God waits till almost the very last minute, as God usually does. It's around noon. The city of Damascus is within sight. Saul may be frothing at the mouth with his eagerness to start just laying waste to the Christians there in Damascus. And all of a sudden, the midday sun is surpassed by an even greater light. A light that knocks Saul and all of his entourage to the ground. The others evidently stumble and get up very quickly because they are not the focus of of this light. Saul is kept on his knees, bowed to the ground. It's an even greater light. And it's a light from within the light, a voice comes. Those in Saul's entourage heard a sound but they could not make out the voice. Jesus speaks directly and solely to Saul. Why do you persecute me? Uh, Who is this? (laughs) Probably just a very natural, normal reaction. (laughs) Uh, who, Who is this? I am Jesus. If only we had a description of Saul's face in that instance. That is an oh my heavens moment. Although we use much harsher language in the real world. That had to be stunning, shocking, earth-shattering. The one that you knew had died and people were saying that he was alive, but that can't be true because people don't come back from the dead. So they're all just crazy. They're all just caught up in some weird myth and they've gotten themselves involved in some cult because we know people don't come back from the dead. But all of a sudden, the one who was dead is now speaking to me. Your life cannot be the same after that. The voice of Jesus speaks directly to Saul. The light blinds him. The others are not blinded. They are able to take him and lead him where he is told to go into Damascus, and there to a certain man's house, evidently a very wealthy Jewish man in the city. That's where he has to wait. I find it very interesting, and it's just ripe with correlation to the death of Jesus. Jesus makes him wait three days. 
That's a biblically significant number, by the way. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. And did you notice that Saul did not eat or drink for three days? Three days is the maximum you can go without, without liquid. So Saul essentially was dead in that time period. He was blind. He had to wait. He was not eating. He was not drinking. Afterwards, he is reborn. One of the most powerful statements in this exchange is Jesus equating an attack on his church as an attack directly on him. Why do you persecute me? The killing of Christians is an attack on Jesus. That's powerful imagery. For those of us who are followers of Jesus and, 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 and the opposition that we face today or we face in our lives, I, I can guarantee is nothing like the majority of oppressed Christians have faced throughout history. But we can know this from this entrance, from this, from this uh, experience and from this section of the Word of God. Any person who is attacked for their faith in Jesus, anyone who is persecuted, anyone who is imprisoned, any, anyone who is oppressed because they wear the name Jesus, Jesus is with them. Because it's not just them who are being oppressed and persecuted and imprisoned. It is Jesus. Jesus has got our back in that midst. Even in scriptures, he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even though Saul could not see the resurrected Jesus because of the light and the brightness, he saw him. The eyes of his heart were opened and enlightened. He saw Jesus for who Jesus truly is, risen from the dead and reigning from heaven. And as such, he too became an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus For what I received, he would write much later, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' younger half-brother. Then to all of the apostles, all those who served Jesus and were sent in his name. And last of all, he also appeared to me as to one abnormally born. We see elsewhere in the Scriptures that Paul attributes his call, his conversion, and his commission to the foreordained plan of God. Yes, his devout upbringing, his devotion, his passion to his faith, his willingness to inflict bodily harm on others simply for what they believed 
he saw as a part of God's hand in his life to bring him to that low level in order to save him, to rescue him, to redeem him. And as an eyewitness of the resurrection, he too became an apostle, one sent by Jesus to preach, to start churches, to expand the kingdom, to explain the gospel, particularly to the Gentiles. We sit here today, or we sit there on your couch, in your living room, wherever you are today, because God called and rescued and redeemed and commissioned a man named Saul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. He is the one who brought the good news of the Jewish Messiah, being not just the Messiah of the Jews, but being the Messiah for all mankind, being Lord of all. And around the globe today, every single one of us who does not have Jewish blood, Jewish ethnicity in, in us, we attribute our faith and our lineage, our spiritual heritage to, to Paul being converted and being faithful to his call and preaching to the Greeks, the Romans, and Asia Minor and everywhere else that he went. We are his legacy. We are the result of this encounter, this moment, foreordained in the plan of God. As Paul is blind, as he is humbled, as he is hungry, as he is probably just swirling with questions in his head of how Jesus could be real, Ananias, this other man chosen by God, does go to see him. And first off, I want to give the man some props. You heard his hesitation in the story because Ananias like, hey, Jesus, that's the guy killing us. Like Jesus didn't know. <laughs> he, he's, the one, he's the one harassing us. He has, he has letters of authority to arrest us. Jesus is like, oh, really? No, he, he knew. But, but you can understand Ananias' hesitation. Yet, he is faithful. He goes. Those moments of meeting, even if Ananias was full of the Holy Spirit, there still had to be a little fear or apprehension within him. Is this a trap? Even though God has spoken, God has directed, that doesn't mean everything is going to go peachy keen and smooth and easy. But he goes. He lays hands on Saul, and Saul is able to see. His sight is regained. Immediately, he is baptized. He is reborn spiritually. The gospel is explained. The call of God upon his life given to Ananias is explained to him. Paul's life is changed. So props to Ananias. He sure makes up for the first Ananias in the book of Acts, the one who lied and God struck dead. This Ananias is faithful. The rest of the story, I just sum up very, very briefly. 
Saul's training and passion, now empowered by the Holy Spirit, made him a formidable preacher of the gospel, first to his brethren, fellow Jews. But this story is just beginning. We'll get to it, actually, in this fall, as we move into the latter half of the book of Acts in the fall. The most amazing thing out of that little last section there about Paul's preaching is he preached in Damascus for quite a while, then he goes to Jerusalem for a very short trip. The other apostles are still scared of him too. All the disciples are. You know how hard it is to live down a reputation, right? No matter how much you've changed, you run into somebody who knows you from the old days, they're still going to think you're in the old days. They're, they're still going to think you're the same way that you are. Reputations are very hard to overcome. But Paul finally does get accepted, and he gets to meet. And you know what he does? He goes and preaches to the same Greek-speaking Jews who accused Stephen of blasphemy. He preaches to them. He takes Stephen's place, the one that he had given the, the approval of for killing. He now stands in the same place, and he preaches Jesus to those very same Greek-speaking Jews who react exactly the same way. They want to kill Paul as well. Just sometimes it's amazing how God works. I want to wrap this up with just a few points of application, points for us to, to consider and to put into practice. Paul had lots of reasons for not believing in Jesus. Those reasons were overcome when he encountered the living Christ. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, what are your reasons? I'm not looking for excuses. I'm not looking for hearsay. I'm not looking for, oh, well, there's these guys on the internet who say this. No, no, no. What are your reasons for not believing that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead? Oh, well, the church throughout history has done bad things. Yeah, the, the followers of Jesus have been stupid way, have been way stupid way too often. But what are your reasons for not believing that Jesus rose from the dead? That's the crux of Christianity. What are the reasons? Write them down. Articulate them. For those who are believers... Write out your own testimony. It's a very simple pattern. Once I was, then Jesus, now I am. Once I was lost, once I was blind, once I was self-absorbed, once I was prideful, whatever it is, once I was, describe yourself. Then how Jesus came into your life and changed you then now, because of Jesus, I am. You see, Christianity is based on historical incidents, historical facts. Historical facts can either be, uh, they can be believed or they can be disbelieved. They can't really be disproven at this point. So it's belief or disbelief. So we found Christianity upon the historical, the historicity of Jesus of dying and rising from the dead. And the church starting and expanding and growing, overcoming opposition, all those things, that is, that is established history. 
Make of it what you will. But when you combine the, his, the facts of history with the fact of a changed life, you, you, can, you can refute or at least disbelieve some of the acts of history, but a person cannot disbelieve a person whose life has been changed radically, drastically, dramatically. They can still choose to not believe the source of the change, but they cannot disbelieve the change. So you are a living, walking testimony. In, in fact, the, the, those, who are, those who are highlighted in the book of Revelation in heaven says are those who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb, Jesus dying for our sins, rising from the dead, and the word of our testimony. Irrefutable evidence that Jesus changes lives. Application point number three. Is there someone you're scared to talk to about Jesus but you really sense God putting them on your heart. Pray and obey. You may be the Ananias God is sending to us all. And you may be thinking, oh, they got a temper. Oh, they, they don't like this Jesus stuff at all. Pray. Pray for the words. Pray for the timing. Pray for the opportunity and then obey and see what happens. And if you get beat up for Jesus, you got beat up for Jesus just like the apostles. It's all good. <laughs> Do not quote me on that. <laughs> Wear tennis shoes. If you need to run, run, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. And then there's, this is not on your notes. It's just, it's just one I thought of just a few, a few moments before this, the, this, the, the sermon today. But I think it's real important that we all need to be assured of. Every conversion is miraculous. We may not have seen a light from heaven. We may not have heard the voice of Jesus confirming that he is Lord. We may not have had some just incredibly overwhelming experience of, of the clouds parting and the sun coming down and birds singing or whatever it is. Our conversion may be much more mundane. It may be instantaneous. It may be it took years for us to be convinced and to believe. That doesn't matter. You see, because it takes a miracle to change a heart. It doesn't take facts. It doesn't take evidence. It doesn't take time. It doesn't take influence or the example of others. The only way a human heart can be changed is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if your heart has been changed, that means the Holy Spirit has worked in you and you are a miracle. Regardless of how you came to believe and how it took place, maybe it was very boring but if your heart is aligned with God, if you believe in your heart that, that Jesus died for your sins and, and then he rose from the dead, you are a living, breathing miracle of the work of God. So don't diminish your experience. Your story is your story for an eternal purpose. Remember that. I'd like to have uh, Tay and, and the guys come back up on the stage as we prepare for communion. Communion is a time in our service where we worship together. 
and honor Jesus for what he did for us. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. We take bread that represents his body. We take juice that represents his blood, the body and blood that were (sighs) killed and ended for us so our sin could be atoned for. And the body and blood that was reunited as Jesus came back to life.